Good morning, and welcome to the Scholars in Iron podcast. I'm your host, Joe, coming to you from outside the nation's capital, right here in the DMV. The objective of Scholars in Iron is very straightforward. It's to associate strength training with intellectual endeavors. On the show, we'll examine the connection between capitalism and CrossFit, philosophy and powerlifting, all to raise some hell and even a few questions. By the end of each episode, we'll get one rep closer to living the phrase, civilize the mind, but make savage the body. Now come on, let's lift. For today's episode, I want to focus on the shift from exercise to training, from trivial facts to grasping theory, and touch upon Soviet psychologist Lev Vygotsky's notion of the zone of proximal development. I'll also go into my own encounter with these ideas and how I continue to make sense of them. But before I do, I want you to think back to a time when you had to not only read, but truly understand a difficult text. It could have been a dense philosophical work like Heidegger's Being in Time or Marx's Capital. Think about the feeling of intellectual levity you had when you finished it. It's like you could finally take information and analyze it, tear it apart, reassemble it, and provide a well-articulated critique. Even taking in phenomena around you like advertising or clothing styles and so on, all could be encapsulated and explained in a totalizing way. It's a real feeling of power because you've actually gone through the process of exercising your intelligence through a disciplined approach. And who knows why you decided to do it. I mean, anyone can basically read the Google Scholar or JSTOR article, but maybe you were tired of hearing the opinions of your classmates or professor and decided to take upon yourself to master that particular text. Reading a great work of literature can be a humbling process. It requires you to shed a lot of assumptions before going in, attempting to understand the meaning of a certain word or phrase the way the author had intended. It's to basically make yourself intellectually open to new ideas, to new forms of logic. If you're like me, you probably went through plenty of nights racking your head trying to figure out a paragraph at like 3 o'clock in the morning. Your mind is way too active, all the neurons are firing, and you're straight up unsatisfied and you just need to figure it out. And then there were times that were somewhat less inspiring, when you felt so frustrated that maybe you weren't as smart as you thought you were, but then you finished it, you've understood it, and the questions that occupy your head now are qualitatively different than those you started with. It's progress. Powerlifters can relate. Talk to any of them about their own trials and tribulations in their lifting careers, and you'll be regaled with stories of how many months, even years, went by without making much progress on any of their lifts. And that's not including all the injuries and surges they had to endure. But also ask them what happens when they attempt a lift, let's say they're peaking for a meet, or they max out when they're not supposed to. They'll probably tell you that chances are it's going to derail all of that progress they've been building up for, for that meet. In fact, it might even just mess it up totally for them. Likewise, if you skip a section of a text, it makes it more difficult for you to fully comprehend the future chapters of the book. I mean, sure, will you learn something you haven't before? Yeah, but who dives into a book without the intention of finishing it? You know full well that you only gave up because you were frustrated and that was too much to bear. So, heavy lifting is hard on the nervous system, and reading philosophy can often be nerve-wracking. And this brings me to another point of contention, which I think both academics and serious lifters can find common ground on. You ever come across these people in life, like usually it's your friend's dad or your uncle who read a lot of books like 100 one amazing facts about the founding fathers or Hitler's petting zoo and they're great about telling you all these minute details about like George Washington's dentures or Ava Braun's favorite llama but they don't actually have a theory behind why certain events were important in the largest scope of history it can be amusing if not frustrating because as serious students of history know they're not really studying history they're just learning bullshit bodybuilders in the gym know it when they see it it's the guy who comes in every single day and performing some bizarre routine he had for months you know punching dumbbells 
themselves in front of the mirror and supersetting them with like a Swiss ball tricep push down. And they do this for weeks, months, and they don't really have much to show for it. Don't get me wrong, I've been both guys. And while I think it's great that people even read or have an interest in exercise, these are good starting points, but there's an enormous difference in the results you can get from immersing yourself in a literary masterpiece like C.L.R. James's The Black Jacobins versus that of some journalist hobby like The Animals of National Socialism. You're going to be stuck just accumulating trivia when you could be exploring why Haitian independence was such a vital part of European modernity. So which is it? Compiling asinine anecdotes or being able to summon from the depths of your mind a powerful explanation of history. Put it in another way, do you want to half rep the leg press with eight plates or squat with five plates with good depth? I think Mark Ripito of Starting Strength fame puts it well when he fleshes out the transition from exercise and training, writing, Exercise and training are two different things. Exercise is physical activity for its own sake, a workout done for the effect it produces today, during the workout, or right after you're through. Training is physical activity done with a longer-term goal in mind, the constituent workouts of which are specifically designed to produce that goal. If a program of physical activity is not designed to get you stronger or faster or better conditioned by producing a specific stress to which a specific desirable adaptation can occur, you don't get to call it training. It is just exercise. For most people, exercise is perfectly adequate. It's certainly better than sitting on your ass. Bridging this gap is easier said than done, but I don't think Ripito is the kind of man to bullshit anyone on the hardships one must endure when they undertake training. In fact, I'm still attempting to bridge that gap myself. My reason for kicking my ass initially boiled down to wanting to not feel like a total piece of shit. You see, I had spent the majority of my early 20s and 30s living off a of fast-acting metabolism, stoked by high school pickup games, some occasional lifting, and for a few years some serious boxing. But once I rounded the corner of my 30s, I started to slow down. But not because I was turning 30, but because I had stopped doing the very exercise and sports which kept me strong and agile in the decade prior. And when I took a good hard look at my social circle, everyone was mostly doing the same thing. Nothing. Nobody played sports anymore. Maybe a few got into yoga or whatever, but nothing intense and anabolic like lifting weights. Occasionally some guilt would surface from drinking too much one weekend and I'd show up the next morning to run a few miles. But all of that progress I'd achieved would quickly go out the window when I'd pick up from where I left off with a shitty diet and as Ripito said, sitting on my ass. So there I was, 33 years old. I just finished my field work in Turkey, annulled an engagement with a woman I met while abroad, gained about 20-30 pounds from Turkish food, and decided that it was time to see the doctor. Towards the end of the checkup, the doctor said that I matched a cross into the threshold of obesity, and I was at risk of having high blood pressure, and that basically I need to start eating clean and actually exercise. My first reaction was shock, then it became kind of self-defensive, and then sort of depressed. And when I thought about the prescribed exercises the doctor recommended, I could feel myself already getting winded just thinking about them. The strange thing was, I didn't feel like they were impossible to do, but I was stuck on the fear of what if I had to keep doing them? What if I fall off the wagon and plummet even further? Was it possible to give up day drinking? In other words, I didn't know if I wanted to take on the responsibility of actually changing my current chaotic lifestyle for a more ordered, disciplined one. But I knew damn well that it was going to quite literally kill me if I didn't. And I was 33, not 19, and you know, shit starts to add up after a while. The interesting thing about declining health is that it's never unveiled in some final definitive moment, but always part of a larger, sometimes unseen buildup, often because we either just don't know or because we sort of shirk off the signs. And for me, these moments really began to rapidly accumulate more than I wanted to admit. 
At the time, I was finishing up a teaching job in New York and decided to spend the summer picking up some cash working on the loading docks at UPS. I was on the third shift and I forgot what on God the hour of the morning it was, but I was driving a high-low with a ton of these bags of powder dye when I broke too fast and they just spilled everywhere. Each bag probably weighed like 40 pounds and I was struggling to lift these sacks up and put them on back to lift. Another guy who was working in the truck next to me came over to help. This dude was probably like in his late 60s, early 70s, pretty big, and he was just flipping these 40-pounders like they were nothing, like just right up over his shoulder. And at one point, he sees me straining and without skipping a beat just says, damn man, you need to start working out. You're pretty fucking weak. Now, this guy was a dick, but he was right. I was pretty fucking weak. But I was weak in the sense of what Jim Wendler meant when he says, you're weak because you're weak. You see, it captured in that very moment who I was with my atrophying physique and even flatter willpower. Other, less dramatic episodes which confirm my pathetic state included expanding gene size, persistent lower back aches, and heart attack inducing jogs up a flight of stairs. At one point, I started to even feel odd pains in my arms and that's when I said, fuck it, I'm gonna start running. You know, I threw in some calisthenics like push-ups, crunches, pull-ups. And after being consistent with this for about two weeks, I felt like I was really going to stick with it, but realized that at some point I'd have to clean up my eating. Now the thing is, learning about nutrition for me, especially as an academic, it sort of reminded me of like, you know, entering the world of 20th century quackery and charlatans. They're just selling you all this snakeskin oil. The industry, if you will, is fucking packed with people who seem to only have a tenuous grasp of what nutrition actually is, and it took me probably several months or so until I finally could detect all the bullshit. But anyway, in spite of all that, I persisted and basically eliminated all of the obvious garbage from my diet. This was hard, especially when it gave up alcohol for like six months. And sure enough, the physical changes came, as well as the emotional and psychological even. I'm not one of these people who recommends exercise as a substitute for therapy, but I do think it helps you look and feel more confident, which is what happened to me. It reminds me of what a buddy of mine once told me not too long ago, that whenever he would cross a physical limit in working out, he also felt like he was simultaneously elevating his mind. And that really stuck with me. You see, a lot of people will say that it's all mind over matter, and I agree, but I think there's something else operating here as well. I truly believe that when you're going for a PR on the bench or squat, that in that moment of suffering, when you're trying to get that bar to just go up, never are your mind and body more closely aligned than when you're defying a given amount of gravity. That place, that zone of where mind and body synchronize under extreme stress, I think that approximates what Lev Vygotsky meant by the zone of proximal development. Who was Lev Vygotsky? He was a man who died way too young, but spent a decade writing hundreds of articles and books on childhood development, psychology, and the relation between thoughts and language. He was a Marxist who wrote during Stalin's reign and he really set the groundwork for a lot of latter-day psychologists in Europe. Now, for those listening who are teachers, you probably have already heard about ZPD and maybe even Vygotsky himself. His theories are wildly influential in the field of education, and I came across him when I was taking a course on pedagogy as I was finishing my doctorate. And lately, I've been thinking about him more and more. There isn't a single text, per se, which details all of what the zone of proximal development entails, but what it describes is the process through which a child or learner goes beyond their perceived limits of knowledge with the assistance of external factor like a teacher or an adult. I remember when I first started to squat, it was an absolute disaster. I didn't extend my hips back enough, I definitely didn't break parallel, and to make matters worse, I relied too much on my knees in the ascent out of the hole. I finally learned how to squat from another powerlifter, Ray, who broke down the movements for me, and as I became more proficient at them, I realized that not only can I squat better, but I even squatted a lot heavier than when I was doing them on my own all half-assed. That's the zone of proximal development, where you force yourself out of an area of familiar comfort. 
Vygotsky says that this isn't easy. In fact, he likens it to when a kid runs a race and then fails. The lessons are hard, and when the ego gets in the way, it can feel embarrassing. Putting aside the external factors like a teacher or coach, the sight of growth itself has to be painful. Otherwise, what impetus would your body have to reinforce your nervous system and make your muscles stronger? And the zone is also temporal, if anything. It's now permanent, and it has to be constantly revisited if progress is to be made. I used to falsely believe that, you know, once you have your desired physique, that's it. Just a little maintenance every now and then, and you'll be good. But if anything, it gets harder and it requires constant re-entrance into that zone. Now, at the time, I didn't really think of my transition in quite these terms, but I think the realization of understanding that I had to be in a zone of proximal development definitely pushed me from just exercising to now training. One of the first casualties of my former lifestyle beyond diet and fat was how I began to even view the gym. From just a place of, you know, counting reps and sets and getting out to a laboratory where my body became both subject as well as object in my experiment to become a more efficient organism, a stronger human being. Vygotsky writes that in fact, one of the surefire signs of intelligence is the ability for humans to manipulate instruments in order to grow the organs, the mind, but also the rest of the body. So when I say that the gym is a laboratory, I quite literally take it in the Vygotskyan sense of seeing the manipulation of tools like barbells, free weights, and machines as a matter to expand one of the biggest organs in the body, the skeletal muscle. It requires me causing micro tears into the muscle fibers themselves, which is what happens when you lift intensely. And once they're broken, good adequate nutrition and sleep paves the way for them to actually grow. And so I began to obsess over my training, you know, my nutrition, my sleep. And I did all this, however, during a very stressful low point in my life. I was trying to write a dissertation, I was working a shitty job, and I made the decision to move back home with my folks. I didn't have a girlfriend, and most of my friends were busy with their own lives in New York. I purposely synced my writing schedule with my training regimen because I wanted to feel what it was like to put my body through the stress of heavy lifting, of eating disciplined, of not smoking or drinking, of completing arguably one of the hardest papers I've ever done in my life, all 200 plus pages of it. And I finished writing it in six months. And after those six months, not only did I earn the title of doctor, but moreover, underwent the process firsthand of seeing my discipline pay off. A healthier body, healthier mind, a new person who was entirely different from the one I knew last summer. Training is more often than not a solo endeavor, like writing a dissertation or creating a work of art or doing anything which demands the full expenditure of your mental and physical resources. I never felt like I had a lot of meaning in terms of what I really wanted to do with my life until I finally began to seriously lift. And like anything great worth doing, it's always being accompanied by self-doubt. These hobgoblin voices in the back of my head that laugh or they minimize my pursuits. It's sort of interesting how they all disappear once I'm under or over that iron bar. They just vanish because I'm not interested in their discourse of weakness. I'm interested in becoming a new man. I remember distinctly coming home one evening from the gym after pulling a personal record on the deadlift, and I had this overwhelming urge to read something victorious and triumphant. I had this copy of The Prison Notebooks by an Italian theorist, Antonio Gramsci, and I wanted to find something in his writings that could speak to me at that very moment. Gramsci is important for me. The man had survived a number of years in a fascist prison under Mussolini, so he knew a thing or two about having a steeled optimism, and he wrote exactly what I needed to hear. We can see that putting the question, what is man? What we mean is, what can man become? That is, can man dominate his own destiny? Can he make himself? We maintain, therefore, that man is a process, and more exactly, the process of his actions. Guys, that's all we have for today. Just want to give a shout out to my buddies Mike and Greg for lending their silver voices to the cause. Music by Robert Slump. This is Joe from Scholars and Iron, signing off.